I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Political correctness. Political correctness, I believe, is one of the biggest issues with our world today. We are told that we have freedom of speech and that debate leads to better outcomes. But in reality, we are only allowed freedom of speech when what we're saying will not offend anyone or contradict commonly agreed views. We are only free as long as we are politically correct. And that holds true at work, with friends, even in close relationships. And it just drives me crazy. It feels a little bit like the first person that said the earth is not flat. There is evidence such as the curvature of the horizon that the earth is more likely to be a sphere, but that person was silenced because that view contradicted what scientists of the time believed. Now, interestingly, there is not a place where political correctness is more demanded than within science. If you question a commonly agreed theory in science, you'd better be super solid, which obviously is not the state when you're starting to doubt or question something. Or if you're not that solid, you'll be slammed, literally crushed by your peers and by the establishment. And there is no more place within science that is more taboo, if you want, than contradicting Darwinism and neo-Darwinism. My guest today has chosen to be politically incorrect. Dr. Stephen C. Meyer is openly contesting much of what is attributed to evolution and natural selection. Stephen received his PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. He is a former geophysicist and a college professor, and he now directs the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. Stephen is not shy about Darwin's work. His New York Times bestseller, Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design, as well as his first book, Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design, are not shy to show what is missing in the science of evolution and natural selection. His first book, Signature in the Cell, was named Book of the Year by the Times of London in 2009. His books and research address the deepest mysteries surrounding the origin of life and the origin of animals, particularly the origin of biological information, you know, the code that is needed to produce life. His new book now, The Return of the God Hypotheses, is a book where Stephen presents groundbreaking scientific evidence of the existence of, am I going to say that word, of God based on breakthroughs in physics, cosmology, and biology. While Stephen might be politically incorrect, I believe he is correct. It's not a secret that I too used a bit of math, physics, and cosmology to show that our universe and everything in it 
is not the result of randomness, but rather is a product of intricate design. I wrote that openly in chapter 14 of Soul for Happy and believe it or not, many, many, many atheists came back to me afterwards and said, well, I'm not convinced, but at least you gave me a reason to think again. So give me and Stephen a chance today to take you through the topic of the existence of a divine being, a designer as we both call it. I promise you, we will not refer to a single fable from religion. We will not use verses from the Bible or the Quran. We will just give you a more comprehensive scientific view of what has been marked by science as politically incorrect. We will give you more data, more science rather than less science. Normally, people will tell you, here is a glimpse of the science and this is why we believe that everything is the result of randomness. With enough science, maybe you will make up your own mind about the possibility of everything around you being created through the Big Bang, evolution and natural selection. We will not ask you to do anything actually at the end of this other than reflect and contemplate, basically think about what that might mean to your life. This is surely a topic that regardless of how busy you are today is worthy of taking a little bit of time to slow down. Dr. Stephen C. Meyer and the return of the God Hypothesis. Let me begin by saying for you, I'm the kind of guy like, you know, the girls that used to scream for the Beatles. I do that when I hear you on YouTube. I think it's, uh, to me, as, as I mentioned in my introduction, I recorded that earlier of you. There is a sense of political correctness in our world today. There are certain things that are not supposed to be said. And most people think that this is in our day-to-day -day life. I think there is not a place on the planet where this is more enforced than in science. And within science, the biggest place that you shouldn't be politically incorrect is Darwin. And your work is simply saying, people, listen to me. There are things here that you're missing. So I adore what you're doing. I, I wrote a little bit about it in my first book. And I think you say it's so much better. And of course, all of your three books, we're going to discuss all of them today if we can have a chance. But uh, just to start with, I'm screaming and waving my hands in the air. This is, you know, me meeting my hero. So so thank you so much for joining me, Steven. It's amazing to, to have you. Well, it's really nice to be with you. And what an amazing thing that we can talk at a 12-hour time difference. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Which means we're literally halfway around the world from each other. I lived actually around five years of my life when I was at Google X, I lived my life between Dubai, two weeks in Dubai and two weeks in California. And literally it's night and day, it's 12 hours time difference. And in a very unusual way, when I came to Dubai, I maintained California hours. So I would go to work at 9 p.m. And I would stay at work until 4, 5 a.m. and then go back and go to sleep and then start the day later. And yeah, it's not the easiest life. Uh, so I am, you know, I'm very grateful that you're waking up early. I'm staying a little late and I hope it's, uh, you know, it's going to be worth your time. It's working out beautifully and nice beaches in both places, apparently. 
Dubai is becoming quite something, I have to say. I mean, I've been, first time I came to Dubai, it was 1995, and you could see they were making a lot of advances as compared to the rest of the Middle East. But now it's just really incredible. I mean, public beaches, public parks, they really invested in those things. And they turned the desert into a miracle when you really think about it. It's quite an interesting place, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, have you always lived in Seattle? No, I was raised here and then uh, went to college on the eastern side of our state of Washington. Went to, after graduation, I went to Dallas and worked in the oil industry for four years and then went to uh, Cambridge for postgraduate study and then came back to teach at my alma mater in eastern Washington and then eventually came back to Seattle. So it made a big loop. A bit of a tour, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Seattle is definitely one of my favorite cities in the U.S. I think it's uh, it has a very interesting European flavor to it, I, if I may say, and it's just so pleasant. We found it quite easy to adjust to the weather in Cambridge when we got there because it was almost <laughs> identical to the exactly. dreary, wet, gray yeah. weather we have here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the weather bit you have to sort of ignore. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to start by by actually asking you about you and your journey. I mean, it takes a lot of courage. We're gonna talk about the idea of evolution, the the return of the gut uh, hypotheses, and so on. It takes a lot of courage for a scientist to do what you're doing to say, guys, you've missed something. And it's interesting for me that you are one of the very few that stand up and say this. How did you get that courage? What led you in your research? What led you in your life story to stand up and say, this is not right? That's a bit hard to say, I suppose. Yeah, it's a bit hard to say. There's a lot of factors. I do remember during my PhD years, finding a a PhD thesis or a DPhil thesis from Oxford that was simply analyzing the Darwinian argument from a, a logical point of view. And it looked at for example, the five main classes of evidence that allegedly supported the idea of universal common descent. And it showed that each one of them were either equivocal in the sense that they could be interpreted differently to support uh, what's called a polyphyletic picture of the history of life, or that the evidences were no longer actually evidence. Things like the Heckel embryos drawings that uh, were essentially falsified and and known to be incorrect from about the 1890s on. And so there was this sense that of in encountering a, just a, it was someone else's DPhil thesis from the 19, mid 1960s. There was a sense that in the discussion of Darwin, it was always all reasonable people agree. It was the, <laughs> the sort of message. But when you looked using reason at the actual evidence, the case was a lot less strong than people assumed was the case because of all the reasonable people they thought agreed. It was the sense that everybody else knew. And I remember attending a conference in the fairly small private conference in the mid nineties with a a dozen or so mostly recently minted at that point, PhDs in different field subdisciplines or disciplines of biology and related fields like the information sciences or thermodynamics or things like that. And everyone had doubts because of their own problems in their own field with the theory and assumed that they were alone or isolated in those doubts. But when you got a group of people together and they began to talk and realize it doesn't work in any of the, the sub-disciplines. Uh, I remember talking to an embryologist who I asked, why did you go into embryology? He said, well, I was skeptical about Darwinism. And I thought that the whole field would unravel if we look closely at developmental biology. Well, I just had that same kind of conversation with someone who was working in protein science and molecular biology. Totally. And so you had the sense that 
there was this kind of perception of a consensus that when probe didn't actually exist in any given relevant subdiscipline. I think for me personally, I never felt that I was on the inside of the, I wasn't an evolutionary biologist. I was looking at the subject as a philosopher of science and a philosopher of biology. And in that field, you're sort of allowed to look at underlying presuppositions, the assumptions that might be made in a discipline that could be questioned. And so intellectually, that gave me, I think, a bit of freedom to probe in ways that maybe others wouldn't have. And I, I think personally, I had experience, the experience growing up of being the nerdy smart kid that was kind of socially isolated and hmm. uh, maybe not very popular. And then later, I was kind of a late bloomer and I had a great experience in college, had lots of friends. And somehow the contrast between those two things, if you realize you it's okay to be unpopular for a while. You might, you oh. might later, you can get over it, you know? Uh -huh. And so I've noticed a lot of the people in our, in our network, the scientists and philosophers and scholars in our network have some background in contact sports so that they've been knocked <laughs> around a bit and yeah. uh, being called names by other academics doesn't seem so bad if you've, you know, <laughs> been tackled on the football field or body checked behind the, the hockey net or whatever. So Maybe that's a contributing thing, but it was mainly just the sense that maybe the emperor really doesn't have the clothes that everyone's been told he does, you know, yeah. and starting to, to look at some of those underlying assumptions and meeting a lot of other people in roughly the same period of time who were coming out of PhD programs like Dembski came out of the University of Chicago and so did Nelson and Douglas Axe, a very important colleague of ours was, had finished at Caltech meeting smart people that were seeing very similar problems that I was seeing sort of reinforced the idea that uh, maybe we're not crazy after all. Yeah, I mean, in, in my mind, so I'm a mathematician, and when I worked on the math of evolution, it becomes really clear if you factor in T and the whole idea of the unraveling of time that this is just doesn't, yeah, it's a nice story to tell the not so sophisticated ones, you know, that have really not gone into the, the real deep science of this. But if you actually do the math or do the actual work on protein science and the, and the work and so on, which we will come to in a minute, it becomes really clear that no, this actually requires to be revisited. And, and I think the most interesting thing is that for some reason, every scientific discovery we've ever made was really doubting the one before it. So it sounds really stupid now, but there was someone that basically said the earth is flat is a science theory. And the only way to actually demyth that is to actually say, no, hold on, hold on. There is evidence that it isn't flat. But Darwin seems to be highly protected. The biggest of political incorrectness to ever say there is anything wrong or anything missing. While, like you rightly said, when I speak to a lot of scientists, they say, yeah, it holds on really well when it comes to microevolution. But beyond that, it doesn't seem to have right, a very reasonable right. explanation at all. I had the experience in Cambridge as a PhD student, not as a faculty member, but as a PhD student being taken aside by established scientists, other PhD students, postdocs who would say, you know, when they found out what I was working on in my PhD, which was not the biological evolution, but it was the origin of life problem. They would just take me aside and say, oh, I've never understood how that works. Yeah. That's never made sense to me that we could get from non-living chemicals to the first living exactly. cell by some process yep. of self-organizing, whatever, you know, the chemical evolutionary piece of it didn't make sense. But I've had a number of people, I think you hit on something when you talked about the mathematics. There's been this, the first really prominent skeptics about neo-Darwinism 
were the mathematically inclined scientists who attended the Wistar conference in Philadelphia in 1966. And there's been a kind of a train of thought since then. And people who have an engineering background or a physics background or a mathematical background have been very skeptical about the claims about transfer, the ability for one functionally integrated system, biological system to transform itself in a series of survivable intermediates into another. And when you get right down to the level of the genome, And you begin to ask, well, what are the probabilities that there could be a series of mutations that would generate a new protein or new protein fold? This turns out to be the really relevant Mm -hmm. unit. Even with billions of years, the mathematical probabilities don't look um, very promising at all. Uh, And it was this Wistar conference in 1966 where a bunch of scientists from MIT, engineers, computer scientists, physicists, engaged the biologists and started asking questions about the plausibility of a random, essentially random search for a new gene capable of building a new protein. How probable was that really? Given that natural selection only acts after the fact to preserve a functional outcome. There is the dual aspect of mutation and selection, but the part that's creative in the mechanism is actually the random mutation. The natural selection can only preserve what random mutation first produces. Correct. So let's stick to this yeah. for a second because we want to we want to simplify the conversation to our listeners. So the idea is Darwin claims or you know Darwin's theory basically claims that through evolution and natural selection what you get is functioning models, let's say of beings or physical beings that are different than the ones before them in a very drastic way, different species, and that this happens. And then natural selection keeps the good ones and kills the bad ones. But the part that is not frequently discussed is that the trials in the middle will only count as trials if they were functional in the first place. So you can't have a fish transform into an amphibian, but that amphibian didn't work and consider that part of natural selection because there was nothing to select from. It has to transform into something that actually is functional and then the natural selection would keep the good ones. And and the calculation of this basically means that you only keep the good ones, only keep the ones that actually work, which requires a very big stroke of luck, doesn't it? Well, it could or it couldn't. It may or it may not. It depends on the biology. And this was the natural selection selects for functional advantage. The question is, how hard is it to reach a functional advantage from a previous functional advantage? If it's easy, if just a few changes will produce a new functional advantage, then the whole system could work. But if it's hard, or if there are certain types of functional advantages that are necessary, that are hard to reach, that are really improbable to obtain by purely random means, then natural selection will never have anything to select. So give us an example of that. So what is a natural advantage that you know is functional? It turns out there are many small variations that will produce, we have the classic examples from the biology textbooks, the slight variations in the shape or function or shape or uh, structure of a finch beak or the um, change in the coloration pattern and the peppered moths, Mm -hmm. dark to light to dark again, or antibiotic resistance. Turns out that all of these classic examples of Darwinian evolution in action 
are produced by very minor changes in gene sequences and a very small number of nucleotide-based changes. But more fundamental changes in the history of life require, at the very least, new proteins and new protein folds. And this is where the, the whole question became very tractable. Is the mutation selection mechanism genuinely creative in the sense that it can produce the kinds of changes that are necessary for fundamental innovations in the history of life. And if you're talking about fundamental innovations, you're really talking about a body plan, but a body plan requires new organs, new organs require new tissues, new tissues require new cell types, new cell types require new proteins. So let's just take it right down to that baseline level. Can we get a fundamentally new protein fold, which is a unique three-dimensional structure because that's a necessary condition of any of those higher levels of morphological innovation. And one of the people I've already mentioned, Douglas Axe, decided to take that question on. He'd come out of a PhD program at Caltech in chemical engineering and done a, a basically a chemical engineering protein science synthesis PhD there. And he went and did a postdoc at Cambridge University. He was there for 14 years. And he realized that the whole question of the creative power of mutation and selection could be adjudicated at that fundamental level of Absolutely. DNA and protein folds. So he asked a question, how rare or common are the functional protein folds among the space of all the possible ways that such a thing could be constructed? So if you think of DNA as the famed double helix, it has the nucleotide bases along the spine. And each triplet of bases codes for an amino acid. Each protein is made of usually hundreds of amino acids properly sequenced. What are the odds of randomly changing the sections of the nucleotide bases on the DNA in such a way that you would change one stable protein fold into another one? Because that's what would have to happen in, mm -hmm. in evolution at the most fundamental level. You've got to change from one protein fold to another. And he used a method of, um, it was called site-directed mutagenesis, where he, he systematically sampled the variations that were possible and found that the odds of getting a new protein fold from a pre-existing protein fold were about one chance in 10 to the 77th power. That is to say, that was a measure of the rarity of the stable protein structures called folds among all the possible ways of arranging the, the amino acids that make proteins possible. So that means the search problem is extremely difficult. So if we think of mutation and selection as a search problem, the mutations do the searching, and the natural selection does the preserving once a successful search has been found. But if a successful search is prohibitively difficult because of the rarity of the thing you're looking for, if you're looking for a needle in a great big haystack and you can only search a tiny portion of the haystack, it becomes overwhelmingly more probable that you'll fail in that search than it is that you will succeed. And that is, in, in essence, what Axe found in the systematic sampling of what's called combinatorial sequence space in the protein domain. And so that puts the whole question of the creative power of the mutation selection mechanism in an entirely different light. If it's easy to find new structural forms, new protein folds, then a random search could succeed because if it's easy to find them, if they're common, they're going to be easily found. And then natural selection will often will have something to select. But if they're prohibitively difficult to find, even on the scale of 4 billion or four and a half billion years, 
then it becomes overwhelmingly more probable that such a search will fail. And that's actually the case mathematically. Yeah. And access work has been confirmed by some new research coming out of the Weizmann Institute in Israel by a scientist who's only sadly recently passed away, Dan Tofik. But as you said, when you begin to look at the problem mathematically in light of what we now know about the rarity of functional genes and their corresponding functional protein products, it's impossible. This is not a plausible mechanism of generating new form and structure. So let, let me repeat this and just to verify if I understood correctly. So let's say, you know, in the US, we usually build buildings out of wood. This is a species that is called wooden buildings. So your home is built out of wood and you cover it with whatever. Now we're going to move to the, a technology that is basically, we're going to build another species that is made out of concrete and blocks. What you're saying, the idea of building the protein here is that it's not a matter of the same design, same layout of a house moving from wood to concrete and blocks. You actually have to invent the blocks themselves. Nature has to find a way to create create the block first, and it has to be a functional block that actually sticks well together using cement and mortar and so on. And then it can evolve into the next species. And the idea is that if nature kept trying to build that block, the number of times it would fail as compared to the number of times, or let's call it the other way around, the number of times it will succeed randomly through luck versus the number of times it would fail is one out of every 10 to the power of 77 attempts. I don't know how big that is. That's like trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions well, of times. Well, to put the number in context, there's 10 to the 65 atoms in our galaxy. So this would be like floating <laughs> yes. around in the galaxy, blindfolded, looking for one marked atom. You don't have to just search our galaxy. You have to search what would be 10 to the 12th more galaxies. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to yeah. search a billion more galaxies than ours, atom by atom, for that one block. So that becomes your design. And then I think it's can, actually a trillion more, 10 to the 12th trillion, is a yeah, trillion, not to yeah. be pedantic, but it's even worse, yeah. right, Mo? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So at, you have to search a trillion more galaxies, right? To get to find that one block, which is corresponding to one atom in all of those galaxies. And then you can go take that and then go back and see how you're gonna build the house. If you're lucky enough to find it. Exactly. But the point is that the random search method is not likely to find it in the time available. You're more likely exactly. to fail than succeed, in which case the random search hypothesis is more likely to be false than true. Unless we're super lucky, like yeah. you could throw two dice and get double sixes at the first time, right? But then the problem is that it's not one block that we need. We need, you know, in a human body, I think it's like 20,000 different proteins or something. And we're just like talking that. about just building one protein, you know, yeah. one protein yeah. fold. I got another analogy for you to break it down. Think of a bike lock. We have these four dial locks that we use at uh, yes, yes. 10, digit, yeah. 10 digits, okay? And the reason the locks work is that it's difficult to do a random search because you're hiding one correct combination among, in that case, 10,000. So I used to ask my students, if you imagine a bike thief out in front of the classroom, and the, I would say, is it more likely or less likely that the bike thief will be able to search that set of 10,000 possibilities in time to open the lock? And they'd say, well, it's less likely. I'd say, but wait a minute, that's a trick question. We also need to know how long the thief has to search and say, well, okay, we do. So I worked out the math one time. If the thief is changing one dial every 10 seconds, he can search a little over 5,000 possible combinations in, uh, now I've forgotten how long it is, but in 15 hours, I think. Mm -hmm. So if the thief is particularly diligent, 
after 15 hours, it becomes more likely that a random search Correct. will succeed than fail. All right. But then I said, well, let's change it. What if, and then I flashed up a, a Photoshop picture of a 10 dial lock. Exactly. What if we have a lock like this? Now the, the math becomes prohibitive because if the thief does nothing but change the combination once every 10 seconds randomly for 100 years and does nothing else in his entire life, he'll only search 3% of the total number of combinations. Now it's much more likely that a random search will fail than succeed, in which case the hypothesis that that's that such a thing would happen is more likely to be false than true. Now, in the case of the DNA and protein, we're not talking about a 10 dialogue. We're talking about a 77 dialogue where the combinatorials of all the possibilities just explode exponentially. And in that case, even four and a half billion years is not enough time to search but a tiny, tiny fraction, much smaller than the 3%, in which case it's, again, overwhelmingly more likely that a search will fail than succeed, and therefore overwhelmingly more likely that the random search hypothesis, even granting the role of natural selection, is more likely that that's false and true. Okay, so let me repeat this again, because I know this is true. When you know mathematics, you can easily feel this. So you're, it's really not difficult, but you have to know math. Imagine that your bike lock is made of 77 little dials. Each of them is from zero to nine and that you forgot the combination and try to ask yourself, how long would it take you to guess? If you had one dial on that lock, it would take you 10 trials to guess, right? You're gonna try zero, one, two, three, and so on. Now, as you add dials to it, it is not just double the number of trials, it's, right. it is squared, okay? Right. And then cubed and so on and so forth, right? right. So, so basically you have to try the zero on the first one and then the 77 zeros, and then you have to try one on the first one and then 76 zeros, and then two on the first one and 76 <laughs> zeros. Start counting in your mind how many trials that is. And the problem with looking at the insight about looking at this mathematically is that scientists will tell you, yeah, but we had enough time. No, we didn't. We had four and a half billion years since the beginning of planet Earth. Earth solidified and became a planet four and a half billion years ago. We know that. And it seems like four and a half billion years is a very long time. But if nature attempted to try and make that one protein once every 10 seconds, it is very unlikely that nature will be able to create that randomly. And if it did, it would then have 19,999 more proteins in your body that have to happen exactly at the same time so that your body comes together and works. And these things are somehow forgotten in the fine print when someone says, but we had enough time for evolution and natural selection. Remember, by the way, this is not even about natural selection. This is about creating the first components, the first blocks that we need to create. That life. selection could select. And this is a key, selection only acts after the fact. So Correct. we, yeah. I had a, debate with Lawrence Krauss one time, and I made this argument. Afterwards, his buddy Richard Dawkins weighed in in the social media, and he was irate you know, that I had misrepresented the evolutionary process as a purely random mechanism. And that gave me a chance to respond to Dawkins directly, and I made the point that, no, we fully understand that the mutation selection mechanism is not completely random. Natural selection is not a random process. But, the but there is an ineliminable element of randomness in the combination 
the combo process of mutation and selection, and that is the random mutations are random. Yeah. And unfortunately, what is often forgotten is that the random mutations are the creative element. Natural selection can only preserve what random mutations have first generated. And if the search space, if the array of possibilities that have to be searched by random means is too vast and the thing you're looking for too rare, then even billions of years of time will not render such a search a plausible means of generating new biological information and therefore new protein folds, which are the fundamental unit of biological innovation. You can't get anywhere if you can't build a protein fold. Exactly. Let's go to, to what's even more staggering mathematically, DNA. So we think we've understood DNA. I think what we know so far is like 3% of the DNA, but it's basically 3 billion records. So to a software developer like myself, this is basically sitting down to write 3 billion lines of code. Again, a lot of people think that DNA is just a, a biological thing. No, no, it literally is code. It is basically... It stores code. Absolutely. Yeah. It stores software, really. One of our great biotechnologists here in the Seattle area, where we have all these great biotech companies, Leroy Hood, simply says DNA contains digital code. That's what it does. Yeah, it's basically describing literally like I liken it, which I know is a very, very bad example, but I liken it to the old punch card machines. It basically, the DNA goes through the code pair by pair and says, okay, this is how I'm going to build something. You know, I'm going to switch this on, switch that off, turn this this way, turn that that way, and basically build something out of that. So the idea of DNA itself, again, is not discussed in Darwin's theory at all. And I have to say openly, you know, when I read Darwin's doubt, I thought you were very respectful because Darwin did not have all of that information when he made his theory. If you look back at the time, there was no understanding of any of that underlying mathematics or DNA understanding and so on. How does that change the view of evolution? If you think about DNA, what does that make? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because, of course, Darwin didn't know much about hereditary transmission at all. Apparently, he had not read Mendel. A copy of Mendel's book was found in his library after he died. And in the 19th century, the pages of books came bent over and you had to snip them to read the <laughs> page one was visible page four was visible but two and three were not until you snipped the folded page and he had not cut the pages on mendel's great work but in any case by the 1950s we did learn about dna and by the 1930s there was a new version of darwin's theory called neo-darwinism which placed great stress on the role of mutations as the as the agent of innovation in biological evolution and so initially, when DNA was discovered, the neo-Darwinist said, aha, here is the mechanism by which those variations, those mutational variations occur. They could easily envision a change in the essentially letter-by-letter -letter sequences in the DNA that would result in new biological innovation. The problem that was unappreciated in the 1950s, though, was soon, very soon appreciated in the 1960s as scientists, particularly those scientists who convened at the Wistar Institute, began to think about mathematically the odds of generating a new protein from a series of random changes in the DNA. So there was a kind of a, an initial optimism that came with the, the discovery of DNA and its information-bearing properties among the neo-Darwinists who thought that individual or a combination of base changes in the DNA would result in the biological innovations that the theory required. But when that possibility was examined mathematically, a lot of doubts began to arise. In my view, I guess, 
I feel a bit insulted when people tell me that code can write itself because writing code is a very tough thing to do. It's, you know, I mean, if you've, especially if you wrote the kind of code that I wrote, I mean, I wrote in the very early years, I started from having a Sinclair and then a Commodore. And then in, when, in my very first career in IBM, I wrote humiliating languages, RPG and CL1. And it's just so many of them. And if you made one mistake on a 10,000 line of code program, the whole thing wouldn't work. And yet now we're assuming that you can actually keep trying and somehow get a 3 billion line of code program to somehow fall into existence without someone like me putting 200 million years of his life writing it. Well, if I'm on talk radio and have to make my argument very quickly, I'll often quote Bill Gates, who says <laughs> DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever mm -hmm. created. And we know from experience that software comes from programmers. And indeed, we know that information, whenever we find it, especially if we find it in an alphabetic or typographic or digital form, always arises from an intelligent source. So the discovery of literally digital code at the foundation of life should have been for everyone a massive aha experience. There was a mind behind this. And I had an experience with... Um, a software developer who granted a couple of years of his time to us at Discovery. And he wrote 10,000 lines of code to simulate, to help us simulate the gene expression system, how the information in the DNA directs the construction of the proteins. And one day he walked into my office and through a computer design manual or textbook, I guess, on my, on my desk, it was called Design Patterns. And he said, I get an eerie feeling that someone has figured this out before us. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm learning a lot of molecular biology. I have to in order to write this code to simulate this. And he said, he said, there are known computer design patterns evident in the way the cell is processing information. It's not just that the DNA contains information. It's that there are sophisticated design patterns at work in the processing of that information. And I looked at him quizzically, he said, well, look, a design pattern in computer science is an established method of storing or transmitting information. And you know how in your computer, he says, you've got a spell check, automated error correction. Well, there's automated error correction involved in the gene expression. We have files within folders and folders within bigger folders on the computer. Well, there's a, a hierarchical filing system yeah. of information in the cell. And he went on to articulate these various design patterns. So there's a very sophisticated means of processing and storing information. In fact, the, the DNA is part of a information transmission and processing system. And it's an, an incredibly sophisticated form of digital nanotechnology. And I think it's implausible and extreme to think that that would have arisen from undirected chemical processes without a mind. I want to go back to the idea of design because I think we want to spend a lot of time on this, but there is another bit of Darwinism that I think needs to be addressed, which is the Cambrian explosion. So what, one of the things that was also somehow conveniently not mentioned enough is that we have very little evidence of actually a lot of the species that we've seen at a certain era of our history did not come with a predecessor. 
they just existed. And for those who may not have heard of the Cambrian explosion, search about it. So you know how things are, basically we find fossils in strata of sedimentation. And so you can basically trace the age of the fossil to the time where the sedimentation happened. And there was one era, I think Darwin himself mentioned in his book, that basically said you have a lot of explosion of life, lots of different species and nothing that counts as a predecessor to them. Can we talk about this? This one was one of my favorite discoveries when I read your book. Yeah, thanks for asking. Of course, I wrote a, my second book was entirely about this, Yeah, what I call Darwin's doubt. Darwin yeah. is aware in the 1850s that the fossil record did not actually support his idea of gradual evolutionary change. And there was a particular event that especially bothered him. We now call it the Cambrian explosion. It was the, that term refers to the abrupt appearance, geologically speaking, of the major animal body plants, most of the major animal body plants. A body plant is a unique arrangement of body parts and tissues. And the animals that arise in the Cambrian have no ancestral precursors that resemble them in virtually any significant respect. So give us an example, like a... Well, yeah, I mean, the most famous phylum, therefore, and this would be the large scale class in the largest uh, division of biological classification among the animals. So the most famous phylum is the arthropods. These would be the animals with hard exoskeletons. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a number of different classes of arthropods that arise. Perhaps the most famous arthropod is the trilobite. And these creatures just, as you rise through that sedimentary column, they suddenly appear at a particular point in the Cambrian. And you have many, many of different phyla of worms. You have now even uh, chordates with fishes. You have brachiopods, a whole host of really distinct animal forms abruptly arise in the Cambrian without discernible ancestors or precursors in the lower pre-Cambrian strata. Maybe we couldn't find them. I mean, maybe the things before them. This was for a long time, the idea was called the artifact hypothesis, that the missing ancestors were either an artifact of incomplete sampling, we hadn't looked hard enough, or they were an artifact, a poor depositional environment. They were for some reason not preserved. 160 years on from Darwin's origin of species, We've looked very extensively. We've sampled the fossil record. We keep finding the same kinds of things over and over again. And by basic sampling theory, when you reach a point of diminishing returns, you get a sense that you've sampled everything adequately. So that's not no longer thought to be an explanation. But people did hold out for the idea that maybe the, the pre-Cambrian environment wasn't such that it would preserve the ancestral fossils. In China, a few years ago, there was a very dramatic find of, there's debate about this, but uh, certainly embryos, embryo fossils, probably of oh, sponges. Yeah. And these were found in the pre-Cambrian layers, just beneath the layers that documented the Cambrian explosion. So it raised the question, if you can preserve small, soft embryos. embryos, why can't you preserve the remains of the much larger animals that had hard parts? And the Chinese paleontologists concluded the obvious, that they weren't preserved because they weren't there. The depositional environment was perfectly suitable for preserving even very small, soft, microscopic organisms. If it can preserve those, why not the larger things with the hard parts? So the artifact hypothesis, I think, has failed. 
I think the leading, certainly the leading Chinese paleontologists and leading Americans like uh, James Valentine and Doug Irwin have abandoned it. So the Cambrian explosion is now thought to be a real event. You have to reckon with it. You can't say it's just an, an artifact. Yeah. 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 And here's the other thing is that that's not widely known is that the Cambrian explosion is only one of numerous such yep. events in the history of life. Uh, Gunter yep. Beckley, the German paleontologist who in 2016-17 announced that he had come to accept the theory of intelligent design after having curated the Darwin anniversary exhibit at the Stuttgart Museum of Natural History, the largest natural history <laughs> museum in Europe. He was in charge of the Darwin exhibit and at that point began to read books about the theory of intelligent design so he'd be prepared to answer questions about it from the media. In any case, he wrote an article in 2017 about 17 major fossil explosions, the first birds, the first dinosaurs, the first flowering plants, the first mammals, all come into the fossil record abruptly in the same manner as these first animal body plans do in the Cambrian period. So this pattern isn't an, it isn't an isolated anomaly. It's a repeated anomaly. It's something that doesn't fit with Darwin's theory, but it is the overriding pattern of the fossil record, abrupt yeah. appearance and then stasis. So let's close on Darwin because we have so many other things to talk about. What did Darwin get right? Well, I think he saw patterns of limited patterns of common ancestry among closely related organisms. I think he also saw that there is variation and selection. Selection is a real process. Natural selection is a real process. True. Yeah. But it's limited in its creative power. And I, th I think what he developed was a framework for understanding microevolutionary theory or adaptation that was extended beyond its true explanatory power. So it's, it's a theory that has applicability within a limited scope and it simply was extrapolated to try to explain all of the history of life and to provide a mechanistic explanation for the origin of major morphological innovations. And on that score, I think it fails. Okay, so here's the most crucial question. So evolution, natural selection seems to be working in microevolution, you know, within the same species and so on. It doesn't seem to explain lots of, of challenges when it comes to to macroevolution or the creation of a new species, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is intelligent design. Maybe there is something we don't know, right? Maybe there is a third process that we don't know. Right. And there have been, of course, in my book, Darwin's Doubt, I address this in detail. There have been, especially since the 1990s, but even going back to the late 70s, there have been a series of new evolutionary models or proposals mainly as a consequence of evolutionary biologists themselves recognizing the, the lack of creative power of the mutation selection mechanism. In 2016, I attended a conference at the Royal Society in London that was convened by the so-called third-way evolutionists. They don't accept intelligent design, but they reject neo-Darwinism as well, and they're calling for a new theory of evolution. And the reason they're calling for a new theory of evolution is they recognize some of the same problems that we've been discussing, that mutation and selection lack creative power. They do a nice job of explaining small-scale variation, but not large-scale innovation in the history of life. One of the conveners of the conference afterwards wrote an article characterizing the conference for its lack of momentousness. And she said that essentially, I think the message was that we did a good job of characterizing the problems with the existing theory without really coming up with any mechanisms that could supplement mutation and selection to give evolutionary theory an account of morphological innovation. There's still no, no theory that provides an account of the origin of biological information or the origin of higher level form in the history of life. 
So that's still all on the side of the critique of, of mainstream materialistic evolutionary theories. What would lead one to consider the possibility of design as an explanation? Well, that was really the question that motivated me when I went to grad school, when I was working in philosophy of biology, and I was working on the origin of life problem. And I was very interested in the whole question of information, because it seemed as in the computer world. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to give your computer a new function, you have to provide new code. If you want to build a new protein fold or give an organism new anatomical structures or features, there has to be information for building those features. Yes. So where's the information come from? And what do we know about the origin of information from our uniform and repeated experience? This is where, the, for me, the light bulb went on. I was studying the methods of reasoning that historical scientists use. Since you can't repeat something under controlled laboratory conditions, if you're trying to reconstruct the ancient past in evolutionary biology or archaeology or anthropology or cosmology, what kind of scientific method do you use? And it turns out there's a method used that's called inference to the best explanation, where a best explanation is understood to be one that posits a cause which is known from our uniform and repeated experience, from our present experience, to have the power to produce the effect in question. Darwin's mentor, Lyell, had a phrase he used, he called it, that if you're trying to reconstruct the remote past, he says, we should be looking for causes now in operation. And that was closely related to his dictum that the present is the key to the past, or we should be looking in our present experience, our present uniform and repeated experience of cause and effect structure of the world. That should guide our our reconstruction of what most likely happened in the past. So I asked myself a question, what does our uniform and repeated experience tell us about the origin of information when we find information in a digital form? What is the cause now in operation for the production of information? Well, it turns out that it's agency, well, it's mind, it's intelligence. If you find computer code, there was a programmer. If you find a, a section a of book. linguistic text, there was a, there was a writer. Yeah. If you find uh, information coming through a radio signal, well, there was a speaker at the other end. In our experience, information is solely the product of intelligence. We know of one and only one cause of information, and that is intelligent agency. And that allows for what's in logic called a retrodictive inference. You can move from the effect back to the cause with confidence if there's only one cause of a given effect. If it's true that where there's smoke, there's fire. If I see smoke wafting up above a hillside, I can infer that there's a fire below the hillside out of view. And information here has to be very carefully characterized. We're not talking about Shannon information, which has no specificity to it, but it really is an equivalent, is a synonym for randomness or complexity. But we're talking about specified information or specified complexity. And in my books, I go into, I very carefully characterize the kind of information that is solely the product of intelligence. But the point for our discussion here is that the type of information present in DNA, like the type of information in computer software, or the type of information in a paragraph in a book, is functionally specified information. That is the type of information that indicates the prior activity of an intelligent agent. So we can make a strong inference to intelligent design as a positive explanation for the phenomenon. We're not coming to intelligent design merely because evolutionary theories have failed to produce the origin of information or failed to explain the origin of information, but instead because we have yeah. positive knowledge of the cause and effect structure of the world that indicates that information is solely the product of intelligence.
again, let me try and explain this in a very concise way. The idea here is that creation in itself uses information as the method of creation. So to create a protein, DNA, to create a, I don't know, an optical cell in your optical nerve, the DNA is given specific information that basically creates the cell. It just goes through the code and it creates something. The machine that is creating it, if you want, is how nature operates, but the information is what defines how that cell is created. And so the idea is without information, you have to do this randomly, but to be given information, the source of information as per our experience of everything we've ever observed, science is about observing. Everything we've ever observed will tell you that information will be the product of intelligence. So intelligence will be the one that creates information. Can I give just an analogy that may yeah. help? Imagine that you walk, uh, you're an archaeologist and you, uh, you've assumed that there's never been any intelligent life on Antarctica. It's too cold and remote, but you're exploring and you get through the ice and into a cave and you find on the inside of the cave, there are all these wonderful inscriptions. And as you study further, you realize that the inscriptions are often correlated with pictograms of maybe penguins or other animals. And suddenly you realize, wait a minute, these are informational inscriptions. This is representational art and symbolic representations that is describing the images and the art. And you realize there must have been an intelligent agent here. Why? Because in your experience, you know that, that it always takes a mind to generate information. And yeah. there you have information. It's the distinctive hallmark of intelligent activity. Someone could further claim, well, if we infer an intelligence is responsible for the information in the first cell, people say, but we don't know that there was a, an intelligence before humans, so we can't make that inference. Well, in the case of my illustration of Antarctica, we didn't know that there was ever an intelligent agent that had set foot on Antarctica. But when we find that information, we can make the inference because we know of only one cause. I think the digital information technology inside the living system is so striking in it, it so closely resembles what we're developing in the computer world that this should be an immediate aha experience. It's only the strong materialistic bias that many scientists imported into their scientific study from the 19th century that prevented people from seeing this. And we're just asking to take the blinders off. We exactly. know what it takes to, to create code and there we have it. This is again, this again really intrigues me because there wouldn't be a normal reasonable person that would actually see those inscriptions in Antarctica and basically say, oh, it was the waves hitting the walls for four and a half billion years and the waves chemical etchings or leaching of the water or yeah you just yeah I mean, we have actually plenty of not hypothetical examples when the rosetta stone mm -hmm. was discovered and when the archaeologists yeah, exactly. realized that the three different sections of text were were three different languages one translated into another saying the same thing they knew that the, a scribe had been at work no one said wow this must have been uh yeah. been wind and erosion that wasn't even considered exactly yeah, this was the product of mind. There, in other words, there are things that minds can do that undirected material processes can't. And when we find those things it, present, it's reasonable to infer that a mind did them. It's as simple as that at, at some level. But a mind is a mind God. I mean, because I have to say the definition of God in religion, it varies, but the definition of God in religion, I mean, if we agree that there is an intelligent design, then the question is like, who's the designer? Why the designer did all of this? Why is life so messy if there was a designer? Then you start to question 
the quality of the design, the character of the designer, and so on and so forth. So your book is the return of the God hypothesis. My chapter in chapter 14, as I call it, was the theory of design. There is design. What is your stepping stone between design is God? Well, right. This is the reason I wrote the third book is to address that question. In the first two, I made the inference to an intelligent designer, an agent of some kind. I wasn't just arguing for intelligent design as an effect, but rather an intelligent designer as a cause. But I didn't specify the attribute or any attributes of that intelligent designer beyond conscious awareness and deliberative capability and intelligence, in other words. And my readers wanted to know, what, who do you think the designer is and what can science tell us about it? So that's the question I took on in the new book. And one of the reasons that question arises is if you infer design from the evidence that we have in biology alone, there are two basic possibilities. Either the designing agent is an entity or an agent within the cosmos or an imminent intelligence, if you will, to use the philosophical theological categories, or the intelligent designer is an agent that resides in some way beyond the cosmos is a transcendent intelligence mm -hmm. and to put it in colloquial shorthand either an alien intelligence mm -hmm. within the cosmos or god transcending it and since the evidence we have of design and biology arises long after the beginning of the universe it's at least logically possible that some entity within the universe that preceded the origin of life on earth that existed before the origin of life on earth could have been the designing agent. And as odd as that might sound to some ears, there have been some very prominent scientists that have proposed this idea that's called panspermia, the idea that an intelligent civilization or alien from some other planet or star system evolved by purely natural means, but eventually became intelligent enough to design life itself. And then that agency somehow transported, for example, the first cells to planet Earth, and then the evolutionary process began here anew. No less a personage in science than the late Francis Crick had proposed this in a book called Life Itself in 1981. Fred Hoyle was somewhat sympathetic to this. Uh, Richard Dawkins floated the idea in a film called Expelled in 2008. So that was a logical possibility. I never thought it was a very satisfying explanation because the evolutionary process that produced the alien on some other planet would have had to have begun yeah. from a single cell, which would have required information. Yeah. And so we got back to the same question. Where did that information come from? Didn't seem plausible to invoke a chemical evolutionary process on some other planet since it was so implausible that it could happen here. And again, we know that information comes from mind. So it seemed to push the question back to some sort of ultimate intelligence. But in the new book, what I did, in addition to looking at the biology, was I also examined the evidence of design that we have in physics and in cosmology. Oh, yeah. And the, the oh, physicists yeah. have been telling us since the 1960s that we live in a kind of Goldilocks universe where the where forces the of... Yeah. yeah, the fundamental forces of physics, the strength of the gravitational force, force constant, the electromagnetic force, the fundamental strong and weak nuclear forces, they have to be just right, not too strong, not too weak. The masses of the elementary particles can't be too heavy or too light. They fall within very narrow ranges, very narrow tolerances in order to make a life conducive universe. The expansion rate of the universe and more fundamentally, 
the force that is producing the expansion of the universe, the cosmological constant, has to be exquisitely finely tuned. One, an accepted number is one part to the 90th power. And so you have all of these fundamental parameters of physics that fall within very narrow tolerances for no underlying physical reason, uh, no underlying reason of a more fundamental physical theory. And they do so against all odds. It's incredibly improbable that they would fall within these tolerances. And many of these parameters are independent of each other. So these probabilities multiply. And in addition to that, the initial arrangement of matter and energy at the beginning of the universe, the so-called initial entropy fine-tuning is fine-tuned to something, well, it's a, Sir Roger Penrose has calculated the number. It's one part in 10 to the 10 raised to the 123rd power. Oh so it's an, a 10 to the 10 to the 123 is the number, one part in that <laughs> hyper exponential number. You can't even get your mind around the, the degree of fine tuning that's involved. Any mistake in that fine tuning, if you miss it by a tiny, tiny bit, none of this happens. Yeah, it's uh, Maxwell Smart missed it by that much. You know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, you don't get a life conducive universe. And all those conditions are merely necessary, but not sufficient. There has to be also planetary fine tuning down the road, et cetera, or down the timeline. So many physicists saw in this fine-tuning an obvious design implication from the very beginning. Sir Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist who opposed the Big Bang Theory because he thought that it, it was too friendly to theistic belief, eventually himself came around to a kind of proto-theism, quasi-theism, maybe just basic theism, and said that the fine-tuning evidence that we have suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics and chemistry. Now, in opposition to that view, people have proposed something called the multiverse, and we can talk about that. It has its strange, but it has some problems which we can discuss. It doesn't answer any of the mathematics in this universe. Well, yeah, it doesn't, but also it doesn't ultimately explain the fine-tuning. Exactly. Because the multiverse hypothesis, it has a problem. The idea of the multiverse is that there are all these other universes out there, so many, in fact, that what seems improbable in our universe by itself is probable on the grander scale, that there must be that eventually a universe with the right combination of parameters would arise that would make it life conducing. And we just happen to be in that lucky universe. That's the claim. The problem is that if all we have are these other universes out there and they're causally disconnected from our own, then those other universes have no impact on anything that happens in our universe, including whatever process it was that set the fine tuning. So they don't explain the fine tuning yeah. unless there is some causal connection. And what the, the multiverse hypothesis advocates have proposed is that there is some kind of underlying universe generating mechanism that spits out universes like as part of a kind of a grand cosmic lottery. And if they can propose some underlying universe generating mechanism like that, they can then suggest that our universe was the lucky winner of a grand lottery. But we don't have evidence of that. The science doesn't. No, of course. You know, this no, no, is just no, a hypothesis, right? No observation. This is purely speculative, mathematized metaphysics. Exactly. Okay. Notice it's a much more convoluted explanation than a single transcendent intelligence. Because you have to formulate you know, different all these different religion, universes yeah. and universe-generating mechanisms and all the theoretical entities and postulates that go along with these universe-generating mechanisms. And there are many. But beyond even that, it turns out that for these universe-generating mechanisms to have plausibility, even in theory, they must be finely tuned. In other words, the universe generating mechanisms require prior unexplained fine tuning, and it takes us right back to where we started. There's no ultimate explanation for fine tuning in the multiverse hypothesis. And yet fine tuning, like information, is something that is known to be only the product of mind. By fine tuning, we mean 
an ensemble of improbable parameters that jointly perform some overall function. A fine French recipe is finely tuned. An internal combustion engine is finely tuned. Computer code is finely tuned. And so in our experience, fine tuning points to a fine tuner. And that's why Fred Hoyle regarded that as a common sense interpretation of the evidence and many physicists still do today. So here's the point though about the alien designer hypothesis. That's where we started this is that uh, no alien being within the cosmos could explain the fine tuning that was set from the very beginning of the universe and upon which its very evolution and existence would later depend. Fine tuning requires a transcendent intelligence that can affect the whole of the universe, not an intelligence that is localized within the universe. I love that. I never actually thought about that before. So what's the nature of that designer, Stephen? Does any of your research refer to that? Well, there's one other piece of evidence that I address, and that is the evidence that we have that the universe itself had a beginning. And we have evidence of that from observational astronomy that began to come online in the 19-teens and 20s through the 60s and into the 90s. And we now have very strong case that the universe is expanding outward in the forward direction of time. If we back extrapolate in our mind's eye, the galactic material of the expanding universe would have had to have been closer and closer and closer together and finally reached a point of convergence past which you cannot back extrapolate, marking the beginning of the expansion of the universe and arguably the beginning of the universe itself. There have been developments in theoretical physics the singularity theorems of Hawking and Penrose and Ellis, and the later theorem based on special relativity of Bord, Guth, and Vilenkin, implying that the universe had a definite beginning. The Bord, Guth, Vilenkin theorem is, I think, particularly powerful in that regard. So you have three different lines of evidence or developments in theoretical physics that are pointing to a beginning of the universe. If the universe, the material universe, if the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy had a beginning, and that's what I think the evidence is most naturally suggesting, then you have a real problem explaining that materialistically, because prior to the origin of matter, there was no matter to do the causing. Correct. Prior to the origin of energy, there was no energy to do the causing. And so materialism is a system of thought, which has been the default philosophy of science for the last 150 years can't explain, in principle, can't explain the origin of the most important event in the history of the universe, which is the origin of the universe. But instead, to explain that event, to provide a causally adequate explanation of that event requires positing a cause which transcends the domains of matter, space, time, and energy, which are the things that come into existence a finite time ago. And the notion of God in the great monotheistic religions and there are also non-religious theists, but the notion of God as a transcendent being, a being that transcends matter, space, time, and energy, of great power, who is also a volitional agent, who can initiate a change of state from, in this case, nothing to something, perfectly fits the bill. It's, uh, the method of inference to the best explanation requires us to posit that entity, which, if true, would best explain the evidence. It happens that classical theism posits exactly the kind of entity which, if true, would explain the evidence that we have from cosmology, and also the evidence we have in physics of fine-tuning. In other words, when I formulate the God hypothesis in this philosophical way, I'm positing a transcendent and powerful agent that is also intelligent, and which is also active in the creation after the beginning. 
I don't think deism, for example, fits the bill here because we have evidence of design that arises long after the beginning. So we have evidence of design at the beginning. We have evidence of a creation event at the beginning, but we also have evidence of design arising discreetly along the timeline long after. So I think the hypothesis that best explains the evidence is that of a theistic creator or designer, a transcendent intelligence who or that is also active in the creation. And I think that gets you to basic monotheism. Beyond that, different monotheistic proponents have to, to have conversation between them to decide who's right about the specific religious questions. But I think basic theism is supported by the scientific evidence. My attempt, actually, when I, when I get to that point is I basically say, because that intelligence is transcendent and it's non-physical, it's not part of the universe, it's actually very hard to explain its reality with what we can refer to. Our only points of reference are physical, related to the universe. This is our only cognition, our only ability to understand is to things we can touch or see or light or energy and so on and so forth. And these are all properties of the physical universe. And if they, if the intelligence that might have created all of this is transcendent to the universe, then it doesn't carry any of those characters with it. It doesn't, it's not affected with time as we are. It's not affected with gravity as we are. It doesn't have a shape like we do and so on and so forth. And so it becomes very difficult to explain the nature of that designer. But I think what we've been trying to do today, you and I, is to say, but there is so much inference, there is so much evidence that this is not the product of randomness. Forget biology and, and evolution. This is much earlier than biology and evolution. This is in the physics of it, in the design of the fine tuning of the parameters for the machine where life exists actually to occur in the first place. It's a very striking thing that we have evidence of mind in the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe mm -hmm. before there could have been any physical body Correct. within the universe to instantiate the evidence of mind that we have. This seems to be pointing beyond the universe to a transcendent form of intelligence. We may have limits in our ability to understand what that means, but I think we can infer some very definite things about the cause of the origin of the universe. It was a mind. It was not a mind contained in the universe. And it's a mind that also seems to have been active after the beginning of the universe. And that, I think, is a, that comports with basic theism. That equates to the concept of God. We may have much more to say about who God is, but it is at least a God-like cause that we're talking about. So I'll stop here. I think we've given everyone a lot to think about. <laughs> and I know for everyone listening that this has been a lot more complex than our typical conversations here on Slow Mo, but it is complex because life is complex and the topic is complex and the topic is actually worth contemplating. I would draw everyone's attention that throughout our conversation, Stephen and I have not mentioned a single story from religion, no fables, no beliefs, no spirituality. This is pure mathematics, pure physics, pure biology, pure science. And I think the idea is, and I keep saying that is because everyone who listens to me knows I truly admire science and what science has done for us. But because of the complexity of science, we tend to actually 
ignore some very important parameters. We tend to somehow basically say, look, let's just work with what we have, just like we worked with Newton's laws to put a man on the moon and then realize that Newton's laws were just such a small fraction of anything that we've ever known, but let's work with it. So a lot of what gets missed in this conversation, I believe, is the important bits. And I hope that we've tried to explain them today in a reasonably simplified way for those who are not into mathematics and physics and biology. But do ask me and do ask Stephen if you have further questions, you know, find me on social media. I'll try to simplify it as much as I can. What we're trying to tell people here is there is a reasonable doubt if we were in a court of law, there is a reasonable doubt from a science and mathematics and biology and physics point of view that we are not the object of randomness. There is a reasonable reason to believe that this is the result of intelligent design and that this intelligent designer is transcendent. It's not part of this universe because it needed to exist with its intelligence prior to the existence of the universe. Stephen, any last words before I bow? I've enjoyed the conversation very much. And I think it is also very interesting that you come at this whole discussion from the standpoint of a software developer. Oh yeah, We have found that the people who get the case for intelligent design first are often computer programmers, medical doctors, and then engineers of various kinds because they're working with design and they recognize Absolutely. the yeah. hallmarks of design systems. And certainly in the living world, they're everywhere evident. But even now the physicists are saying, hey, the basic parameters of the universe are exhibiting design. So it's, it's yeah. a fascinating time to be alive and wonderful to have this conversation again, halfway around the world from each other. I absolutely loved every minute of this. I mean, you're so spot on because just yesterday evening, after 27 days of very hard work, I finished the final edit of my next book, 293 pages. It's not a very complex universe when you think about it. But if someone told me that the letters fell into their place and natural selection deleted the previous copies, I'd be very, very offended. Those 293 pages were truly You my worked work. hard at those and exerted your intelligence to get those characters in the correct order to convey your meaning. Yeah. Absolutely. And once again, everyone, I mean, we're sharing our point of view here. Of course, everyone is entitled to their own point of view. I have to say, I have waited to host Stephen here because I've followed his work. I've read his books and I really think there is rigor in the analysis that he puts in place. I hope you found this useful. Go back and listen to it one more time. If you found it useful, please share it with others. If you have questions, do send them my way and I'll try to answer as many of them as I can. I'm very grateful for your time, Stephen. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you again. And uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime, but it was really fun. Absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening. I know this one took you a little further than slowing down. So I hope you have enjoyed it and uh, I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.